We're back in 1 John chapter 3 this evening, so turn there if you would, please. The Apostle John wrote a gospel. He wrote the last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse, the book of the Revelation. A lot of country folk I know call it Revelations, but it doesn't have an S on the end. And then he wrote these three letters, and we're looking at a section in... Uh, the first letter and the third chapter. We're looking at verses uh, that talk to us in part about the first coming of Christ and its relation to sin and the devil. Those two things can't be separated. Sin and the devil uh, go together like ham and cheese and bacon and eggs. They just peanut butter jelly. Uh, they, they go together. You don't have one without the other. There's sin, there's the devil. And the two are in this passage intertwined. In verses 4 through 9, uh, I mentioned this morning that a form of the word sin, it would be sin, sin, sinning, appears ten times. That's, a, that's frequent in six verses. And the devil is mentioned three times. And what John says about sin and the devil is developed in two parallel passages. Verses 4 to 6 is the first. Verses 7 to 9 is the second. We examine verses 4 through 6 this morning, and we saw that John answered three vital questions. What is sin? And um, he answered that in verse 4. Everyone who makes practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is a transgression of the law. Uh, the second uh, question is, what does Christ's coming have to do with sin? And that is answered in verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then third, what difference does the presence of sin make in our lives? And that's answered in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. It's not that you don't sin, uh, it's that you don't keep on sinning, a habit of sinning. And then he says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And now we come to verses 7 through 9. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In this section, John makes essentially the same arguments that he did in the previous one. He does that by associating sin with the devil rather than referring to it as lawlessness. He does so by describing the purpose of Christ's coming as to destroy the works of the devil and not just to take away 
our sins. And then by saying that whoever is born of God, where previously he spoke of abiding in Christ, the one who is born of God will not continue to sin. So he adds some new ideas here, but he maintains the same essential points of his argument. And his primary purpose in both of these sections is to show how incompatible, how irreconcilable sin is with Christianity. And anyone who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ but continues a life of sin is living in complete contradiction to the whole purpose of Christ coming into the world. Well, look with me at three times, at three things tonight from these verses. We're going to look at the diabolical nature of sin. That's verse 7, the first part of verse 8. Then we're going to look at the devil-destroying work of Christ. That's the latter part of verse 8. And then we will look at the divine power of the new birth, verse 9. So John begins this section by highlighting the diabolical nature of sin. Let me read that verse again. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, referring to Jesus. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. We note here how John refers to his readers as little children. If you read through 1 John, you see that he does this several times. It's a tender address. He is appealing to their consciousness as being members of the body of Christ. He follows that tender address with a stout warning. They were in peril. So he alerts them to be on guard against those who would deceive them. Note, little children, let no one deceive you. In chapter 2, John had warned them about many antichrists who have come, teaching false doctrine. And though in chapter 2, verse 19, he says the peddlers of false doctrine have gone out from them, they had still continued to spread their heresy. So John warns them to be on guard against these corrupt teachers, these corrupt disseminators of false doctrine. Your friends, Christians, must always be alert against deception. And the apostolic warning made here is as relevant to us today in the 21st century as it was to those in the 1st century. There are still charlatans who attempt to lead people astray. All sorts of deception, doctrinal deviations, new ideas. We live in an age where people like anything new. Don't just preach us the Bible. Tell us something new. And there's deviation from the doctrine, deviation from confessions, why confessions of faith have been cast out in most churches. Moral deviations, 
course, when you go off the rails doctrinally, you're generally going to go off the rail morally too. The two things go together. And so we must be alert. We must beware that there are those who will attempt to deceive us. And to avoid being deceived, we must be grounded in the truth. And that is, of course, what the Apostle John was trying to do when he wrote this letter to the saints. Now, I want you to see once again that John shows a sharp contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. We saw that this morning in verses 4 through 6. But here he writes, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And then he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Note that the standard by which a Christian is known is the practice of righteousness. He who is righteous in God's sight is the one who has been declared justified because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And because we have his righteousness imputed to us, his righteousness credited to our account, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, there's been a change, and so we now practice righteousness. He made that same point in verse 29 of chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So righteous living is a product of the new birth. What is the test of true saving faith? It is the habitual practice of righteous deeds. I had a man come in my office once. He was drunk as drunk could be. And he came in telling me that he loved Jesus Christ. And I said, no, you don't love Jesus Christ. Oh, but I do love Jesus Christ. No, you don't love Jesus Christ. Well, why do you say I don't love Jesus Christ? Because you don't do the things that he says. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? It's what Jesus said, Luke chapter 6. Now, Let us take note that it isn't the practice of righteousness that makes us righteous. Rather, the doing of righteousness reveals genuine faith. It reveals that we've been born again, that we are now regarded righteous in his sight. Righteous deeds reveals the state of, of the heart. We saw this morning from Matthew 7, words of Jesus, you shall know them by their fruits. So there's this practice of righteousness. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and then he makes this comparison, as he is righteous. Now that reference is to Christ. Righteousness as a way of life is expected in the Christian because our newfound Savior and Lord is righteous. Now, 
we are not righteous like he is. But he has declared us to be righteous in the sight of God. And as a child of God, then the believer seeks to live a God-like life. He seeks to be like Jesus. And as Jesus was righteous, he seeks to be righteous. Look back up in this chapter where he's talking about the second coming. Verse 2, we are uh, God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. When he comes, we're going to be like him because we'll see him as he is. But then he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And as he is righteous, we seek to walk in righteous ways. That's the picture of a Christian. Not perfection, but holiness, desires for godliness, desire to please him. And to walk by faith, live by faith, walk in the Spirit, display the fruit of the Spirit. So the standard by which a Christian is known is the practice of righteousness. That's how you can tell a true believer from a non-believer. And that's how we should obtain assurance. How do I know that I'm a child of God? Well, do I practice righteousness? Do I love Jesus Christ? Do I abhor my sin? Am I seeking to mortify the deeds of the body? Am I being sanctified? Am I being holy more and more day by day? So there's that standard practice of righteousness. But he goes on to talk about the unbeliever and the mark of the unbeliever is the opposite. Note what he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning. So we have the practicing of righteousness, and here now we have the practice of sinning. And the one who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's not just sin that John's referring to. It is the habitual practice of sin. The practice of sin reveals family identity. One who practices sin has the mark of the devil on him. The practice of sin reveals his wickedness, his diabolical nature. Now nowhere does John say that an unbeliever is born of the devil. As he says, the believer is born of God. But he does, and look at that phrase, say, whoever practice, makes practice of sinning is of the devil. That preposition of is ek, which means out of. It means that the source of his sinning is connected to the devil. You probably remember that John is the one who recorded what Jesus said of the devil. Very similar terms, terms to these. Turn, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. The Gospel of John, chapter 8. Verse 41. Strong words, Jesus said to the Jews. You were doing the works up that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. They thought he was illegitimate. 
because Joseph was not his true father. They didn't understand the virgin conception. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. In other words, fruit, right? For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then note what he said. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, John is saying something similar to that here in this passage of Scripture. He's pointing out that evil dominates the lost man's life and that his practice, his life in habitual sin is diabolical in nature. So whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And then he says, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. No, first of all, there is a devil. There is an evil, wicked being known as the devil. He's a spiritual being. The word devil means slanderer, false accuser. It isn't popular to believe in the existence of the devil today, but the Bible presents him as a personal being. He's a created being. He's a fallen angel. And he is set forth in Scripture as the highest of the created archangels before his fall. This is the first time that John refers specifically and directly to the devil in his letter, though he's already referred to him in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 as the wicked one. But he will speak of him again as the devil verse 12 of this chapter, and then chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. So there is a devil. And note this, the devil is the originator of sin. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That doesn't mean the beginning of all created things, but to the time when the devil arose in self-will against God and sinned and fell. Satan sinned before any human being did. And that's evident when you look at Genesis chapter 3. He came into the garden in the form of a servant and tempted Eve to sin. And sin she did and gave fruit to her husband to eat. And so it is said we saw a while ago in John 8, he's a murderer from the beginning. Well, here it says he sinned from the beginning. Not the beginning of time, but from the beginning in that moment when he sinned and fell. And so his characteristic is as the originator of sin is to tempt others to sin. He walks about 
like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Sin is the characteristic behavior of the devil and the one who lives continuously in sin is of the devil. He is like his father, the devil. A Christian can be recognized because he's like his heavenly father. And a non-Christian can be recognized because he is like his hellish father. As children are like their parents, so we are spiritually. We're either like Christ, our blessed Redeemer, or we are like Satan, the devil. Believers and unbelievers both reflect the nature of their masters. So there's this sharp contrast between the two. The one who lives righteously does so because he's in Christ. The one who can conduct is sinful finds his source of his character in the devil. After setting forth the diabolical nature of sin, note that John turns next to the devil-destroying work of Christ. Note what he says in the latter part of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now this is the second time in this passage that John has stated the purpose of Christ appearing in the flesh on earth. We saw this morning, verse 5, you know that he appeared. Why? In order to take away sins. And now he states a second but a connected uh, purpose for the appearance of Christ. The reason the Son of God appeared was why? To destroy the works of the devil. Now note here, John gives Christ the distinctive title, the Son of God. Throughout the Gospels, he's referred to as the Son of Man, the Son of God. Eight times in 1 John, he is referred to as the Son of God. The title states his true identity. It reflects, the title, Son of God, reflects his deity. The Son of God is equal with the Father. So why did he appear? He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He's able to do that because he is the Son of God. The one who defeated the devil is none other than the Son of God. He came to crush the head of the serpent. He came to break the power of the devil. Now, John doesn't state here how Christ accomplished this mission. Remember, we saw this morning, John didn't state how Christ takes away sins. But that is supplied throughout the Bible. He takes away our sin by becoming a sacrifice for us. Well, how does Jesus Christ destroy the works of the devil? Same way he takes away our sins. It's by his atoning work on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, there are many categories in which we can view the cross work of Jesus Christ. 
Robert Raymond in his Systematic Theology gives several uh, reasons. For those whom Christ died, it is a work of substitution. That's first and foremost. That's primary. Christ took our sin upon himself and died in order to, uh, that we might be forgiven. But it's also a work whereby divine justice is satisfied and the wrath of God is turned back. That's why it's called a propitiation. But sometimes it's called reconciliation because by his death, that alienation is removed and the mediator brings us to God. It's called a work of redemption. We're redeemed from the curse of the law. He became a curse for us. But it is also a work whereby Satan's evil kingdom is destroyed and captives are set free. In his death and resurrection, Christ triumphed over the devil. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he effectively terminated the power of Satan. John Murray says, this is not a peripheral or incidental feature of redemption. It is an integral aspect of its accomplishment. So, for those whom Christ died, it's substitution. Justice is satisfied. Wrath is propitiated. We're reconciled. We're redeemed. But it's also this work whereby Satan's evil kingdom is destroyed and captives are set free. And the point of emphasis is that Christ won for us at the cross a liberating victory over the enslaving powers that usurped authority. So one of the reasons, it's not the main reason, but it is one of the reasons why Jesus came, why he appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. In fact, that Christ would triumph over the devil is the theme of the first gospel promise that appears in Scripture. Do you know where that promise is located? Turn with me, if you would, please, to Genesis chapter 3. God's created man and woman, male and female, created he them. He placed them in a garden. One law, don't eat of the fruit of this particular tree. You have fruit of every other tree, not the fruit of this tree. And Satan, this evil one we've been talking about, the devil, came, tempted Eve, and she took and ate. She came questioning God's authority. Yea, God said. And Adam ate, and their eyes were open, and they recognized their sin. And in the midst of this, we have the first gospel promise. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the promise. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see what's being said there? Satan struck at the heel of Christ. That's a harmful blow, right? But the Lord Jesus, the seed of the woman, crushed the head of the serpent. That's a destructive blow. We should take note that that first gospel promise speaks about the birth and the death of the Messiah, the seed of the woman. And hostility, enmity between her seed and seed of the devil and conflict, bruising a head, bruising a heel. But victory comes to Christ. So who's the victor over Satan? The victor is the seed of the woman, not the woman herself, but her seed. And her seed points to an individual, a male child. You do know, don't you, that the Roman Catholics attribute the victory to Mary? The Douay version, which they use for a long time, taken from the Latin Vulgate. If you look at Genesis 3.15, it says, She shall bruise your head. But the Hebrew text is clear. He, referring to the male offspring of the woman, not the woman herself. There used to be a statue, I guess I ought to say idol, of Mary in St. John the Baptist Catholic Church just around the corner here on Hughes Road. You say, how do you know there's a statue of Mary in there? Well, every Catholic church has these statues of Mary. But this one, I used to do some weddings there, photography. They... Um, used to have for years this statue, big statue of Mary, bigger than I am, tall. And she's holding the baby Jesus. And there's a big python snake wrapped around her leg, and she has her foot on his head. That's a contradiction to the word of God. Mary's not the victor. Jesus, the seed of the woman, is the victor. And of course, there are many other texts that tell us this. We go several places in the Gospels. But let me show you two places in the epistles. First, Colossians chapter 2. Paul writing and talking about the cross and the peace of the cross. He says in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God hath made alive together with him. That's the new birth, making alive, quickening. Made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it 
to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And verse 15 is referring to the devil's kingdom. And Jesus is the victor. He forgives our trespasses. He nails our sins to that cross. He disarms the rulers. And peace is made between God and man by the cross. Look at one other passage, and that's in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. We're human beings, so he became a human. That through death, I love the passages that tell us why Jesus came. And this is one. So he becomes a man. Why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, let me refer to Robert Raymond in his systematic theology. He said, Christ's cross work was a redemptive work of destruction and conquest. By it, he both proved himself Satan's victor and secured for his own their victory over Satan. Some have asked the question, could Jesus have destroyed the works of the devil in some other way? I suppose he could have spoken a word of a power and destroyed the works of the devil, but that's not the way he chose to do it. He chose the cross. And dying in our place to vanquish Satan and defeat the foe. So what a blessed message. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Note it's plural, works. So that indicates all the varied activities of evil that the devil's been involved with since his campaign of evil, since he sinned from the beginning. And, I, and you could classify that into many, many different ways, I am sure. But Jesus loosed the diabolical chains by which we are bound. Now, we've not been loosed absolutely yet, but the power of the devil has been conquered and overthrown in our lives. Now that devil's still walking around like the roaring lion. He's still busy doing his wicked works. But he has been defeated. Defeated by Jesus who went to the cross for our sins. Through Christ we escape the tyranny of Satan. Mark it down, friends. Believe it. Satan is a defeated foe. Now, we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You, one of those probably causes you more problems than the other. Some of you, it's just your flesh. Some of you, it's the world. Some of you, it may be the devil. But those are our three enemies. But we have hope in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And He's this undoing of Satan's power which was effectually initiated at Calvary's cross, is now going forward through the Spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel 
and it will be consummated at his return and the devil will be cast into the bottomless pit and we shall reign with Christ forever and ever. Well, let's come to the third and last thing in this passage. After setting forth the diabolical nature of sin and the devil-destroying work of Christ, John concludes this section with a word about the divine power of the new birth. He writes in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For, here's why, God's seed abides with him. How can you make a practice of sinning if God's seed abides in you? And then John says he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Well, this seed that abides in us and our being born of God probably parallel and gives us a clue to what the seed means. So no one born of God makes practice of sinning. And what John says here is true of all who are born again. No one means there are no exceptions. Whoever's born of God does not continue to practice sin. That's essentially a restatement of what we saw in uh, verse 6 today, just with a different nuance. Well, John is addressing the subject of the new birth here. He brought that up in verse 29 of chapter 2. Uh, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. To be born of God means to have divine life imparted to our dead souls. That's what it means to be born again, to be quickened, to have the life of God in our hearts. Now, John explains what happens in the new birth when he gives a reason why no one is born of God, makes practice of sinning, and it's because God's seed abides in him. Some say the seed here is the word of God, and there's some reasons for looking at that. Others say it's the Holy Spirit himself, the life-giving agent, and I'm more inclined to believe that. But in some sense, it's both, isn't it? The word of God's the life-giving means which the Holy Spirit uses to implant in us this new life, and even to develop this new life. Where would we be without the word of God? So God has planted new light in us, in conjunction with the ministry of the Word and the Spirit, a believer is a new person with a new nature. And he has a new direction in his life. He's a new man. Paul often used that expression. So he has a new goal in his life. So John teaches that the child of God will behave such a manner that he will be like unto God. The one who is born of God, he says, will not continue to sin. But then he emphasizes that when he finishes up verse 9. He says he cannot keep on sinning. And, and again, John's using present tense verbs here. He cannot keep on sinning. No habitual practice of sin. Again, he's not teaching perfectionism. If that were so, he's contradicted earlier statements that he made about sin in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. What John teaches is that believers commit acts of sin, but they cannot 
habitually practice sin. And the reason is clear. He has been born of God. The impossibility is grounded in the fact that he has divine life. So to sum it up, John is affirming the utter transformation of the one who is born of God. The new birth involves a radical transformation of our sinful nature. We're changed. He comes to reside in us. That, that dead soul is quickened and made alive. And so our, our constant behavior is toward righteousness. Now sanctification, there's one sense in which it is perfect, often referred to as positional or definitive sanctification. But usually the Bible speaks of it as progressive. We become more like Christ. And we never attain full likeness until this body is laid in the grave and we're with the Lord. And then we're utterly, completely transformed. But here, because the Spirit of God lives in us, the direction of our lives is toward godliness and holiness and righteousness. I had uh, a relative who liked to go out on all kind of trips, and one of his favorite trips was to take a canoe from where the Mississippi starts and go all the way down the Mississippi. And the Mississippi River, if you ever look at it on a map, get a close map, and you'll say that thing twists and winds every which way. Sometimes the river is going from north to south, but sometimes it turns back and goes west. But it always turns back and goes south. Sometimes it'll turn back and go east. It'll always turn back and go south. Sometimes it even loops around and goes back north, but it'll always turn around and go back. That's sanctification. That's how your life is if you're a Christian. It's how my life is. One step forward, two steps back, You've been there before, but we keep going forward. Why? Because we've been born of God. A Christian's marked by righteousness, purity of life. He doesn't live a life of constant sin. And the reason is because the seed of God remains in him, and he's been born of God. Do we still fall prey to sinful acts? Yes. But it is impossible for sin to have dominion over him and to be his principal master. So no, we will not have a perfect life here. But the pattern of our life is not one of continual, continual indulgence in sin. We've been changed. We've been transformed. For too long, the Christian church in this modern era has ignored this biblical message. And what the Apostle John writes here needs to be heard desperately in our day and age. We must get back to declaring the message that the person who has been born again 
has had something radical happen to him. And there are so many people who walk an aisle, make a profession of faith, and their lives never change. They sign a card. It's decisionistic evangelism. Give somebody a little bit of gospel and get him to pray a prayer and then tell him he's saved and on his way to heaven. And so many of those people are like the seed planted on the hard soil. And the devil takes that seed and takes it away like the shallow soil. It has no root. Like the thorny soil. Never any fruit. But where that seed is planted, it produces fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100. It's sad when we see people in this decisionistic way of evangelism today emerge on the other side of the decision without any detectable change of life. But the new birth launches a person on a new course. All who are born again have received the life of God in their souls. Has this happened to you? Or have you just made a decision? Does your behavior reflect that you've been born again? Or does the way you live your life show that you're still in the grip of, of sin and the devil? That's why it behooves us to examine ourselves. The last sermon George Whitfield ever preached, preached in New Hampshire, I believe it was. Might have been Maine across the river. But he, uh, he preached on um, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. We need to do that occasionally. Lord, am I just blowing a lot of hot air? Am I just saying I'm a Christian and there's nothing really backs that up? Or do I truly love you? Do I want to live for you and honor you? That's what it means to examine yourself. Am I what the Bible says a Christian is? Because if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is come. And that's why Jesus came into the world. That's why he was born in the manger. That's why his mother and Joseph took him to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5. That's why the angels gathered that night and spoke of the Savior who was born in the city of Bethlehem. He came to take away sin. He came. He appeared as a man in the flesh to destroy the works of the devil. Let's rejoice in that tonight. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it. There are many in the world who would not like what 
these verses say here to us. But John has said them clearly. And he just didn't write them out of his own notions. But was led by the Spirit of God. So help us take seriously this matter of sin. And evil that is in the world. Perpetuated by this wicked one. Who walks even today in the world. We... We see how so many laugh at the idea, laugh at people who think there's a real devil, and yet the way our nation has gone in recent years gives every indication that there surely is a devil, and he is having his way. The Lord, it appears, has let us go, and we're under his judgment even now. God, in wrath, remember your uh, mercy. Come and visit this land again. As there were awakenings before, may there be another one. May we seek to live in this world and walk in the light and declare the gospel. Speak the truth in love. Not be afraid to tell people that there is a hell, that sin is going to take them there. Not afraid to tell people that if they claim to be a Christian and live like the devil, it's because the devil is their father and they're not Christians. Help us to be bold in speaking these things and yet bold in love. But search our hearts here this night. If there's anyone among us that knows you not truly and genuinely, Lord, I've not preached this to shake someone up and, and have them doubt whether they're Christians or not. If we're real Christians, self-examination uh, is helpful to us. But those who aren't really Christians are, are bothered when they begin to look at reasons. And so we pray that you'd be gracious tonight. And if there's one that has been deceived, we read here tonight about the possibility of deception. Take the deception away take the blinkers off their eyes and help them to see jesus and find in him hope and life and joy and peace we commend uh, our time we've spent together to you and pray that this word will bear fruit in our hearts and lives to the glory and praise of your dear son and it is in his name that we pray Amen.